0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello, I'm Scott Lipkowitz, and you're listening to New Books in Military History, part of the New Books Network. Amphibious warfare, as outlined by American Rear Admiral James E. Jewett in 1885, was a relatively straightforward affair. To project power from the sea... All one had to do was offload soldiers, animals, equipment, and supplies from their transport vessels and deposit them on the nearest beach. Once on the sand, these ground forces would then form up and fight their way to victory. Nothing could be as simple. Jouette, of course, can be forgiven his naivete. When he articulated these principles of amphibious operations, the United States' gaze was still firmly directed inward. Policing and pacifying the interior of the American continent was more important than developing the competencies, tactics, and technologies necessary to successfully generate combat power from the ocean to the shore. By 1900, however, these priorities were reversed. The frontier was closed, rapid industrialization was inexorably transforming American life, and the United States emerged as a major player in a tense geopolitical landscape. Given these new realities, argues David S. Nazca, in The Emergence of American Amphibious Warfare, 1898-1945, published by Naval Institute Press, Evolving a formidable amphibious capability became an existential imperative. Failed amphibious operations, Nesca observes, could have a devastating impact on a nation's geopolitical fate. Only those states that succeeded in mastering the complexities of amphibious warfare were able to defend their interests. Those that came up short quickly found themselves subject to a foreign will. Tracing the evolution of the United States' amphibious capability from the first disorganized attempts in the Spanish-American War to the successful landings in the Pacific and at Normandy in World War II, NASCA offers a novel examination of the relationship between amphibious warfare, American strategic interests, and the United States' rise to prominence in the first half of the 20th century. David S. NASCA is a second-generation Marine Corps officer who holds graduate degrees in international relations, diplomacy, history, military studies, and national security, and recently earned his Ph.D. from Salve Regina University. It is now my pleasure to welcome him to the show. David, thanks for joining us today.
0: Hey, thanks for having me, Scott.
1: So the book is quite expansive in scope. You trace the trajectory of amphibious warfare from a a relatively inchoate aim in the 1890s to a fully realized instrument of power projection by 1945. And before we tease out some of that evolution, can you tell us a little about what drew you to this topic?
0: Um, What really drew me to this topic was when I was attending Salve Regina University's uh, PhD program, Um, my dissertation was on the influence of technology on amphibious warfare on the United States. And as I was digging into it, I came to the realization there that it was more than just amphibious technology that was being developed. It was also its application as well, where we see it from the backwaters of, of North America to a slowly progressing use of amphibious warfare with the United States' as expanded responsibilities and interests in the world. And we saw that in the Asia Pacific region. We see that in, the, uh, in World War I and World War II. And then we kind of see between World War I and World War II, a refinement of those amphibious capabilities and tactics based on in my, in my book on how the British used their own amphibious capabilities during the First World War. So it was very interesting. I was very excited. It definitely asked me to cover a lot of ground, which I didn't mind doing the whole key though was trying to be able to condense all this information into something that that regular reviewers can uh take a look at, understand it, and be able to incorporate it into their own in their own lives.
1: The word emergence in the title implies that there's a certain certain conditions had to be met or that specific elements had to coalesce or occur coincident with with one another before amphibious warfare as an operational and even a strategic concept could really take root? Is this how you view the genesis of the United States amphibious fighting capability? And if so, what were the necessary preconditions for its success?
0: I think for the genesis for the emergence of American amphibious warfare, it it was for hundreds, if not thousands of years, the use of amphibious warfare was originally seen and Paul Kennedy mentioned it in a book about uh, technology during World War II was that it was considered a gambler's roll of the dice, you know. So doing any type of amphibious warfare in the past has always been ad hoc. It was never really planned out. It was pretty much improvised. And the technology that was used at that time was pretty much amateurish, where you were loading people onto ships laying them on a beach without any sort of intelligence gathering, without any preparation of the battle space whatsoever, and almost kind of crossing your fingers, hoping that the uh, the amphibious operation was a success. Hmm. And you, we kind of see that with like during the Peloponnesian War, you know, where the, the Athenians try to take Syracuse, and it ended up being a total disaster, and it, not just through technology, but for the command and control and the employment of the tactics, trying to take the city, And then later on, when we get to fast forwarded hundreds of years later with the United States, we kind of see that in my book here for the uh, use of amphibious capabilities during the Spanish-American War, you know, where we had, again, not really used the technology or the planning or the preparation to land a U.S. force, a significant U.S. force overseas. And it happened to be Cuba, you know, and some of the uh, Caribbean uh, possessions and some of the Spanish possessions out in the Pacific. But Cuba and the Philippines was really the big, big areas where we actually employed American forces for the first time. And I know you can always make an argument like, hey, the Marines landing in North Africa and the shores of Tripoli and all that. But this was the first actual use where we put thousands of U.S. soldiers overseas for the first time.
1: I want to plan a flag in the technological component. You know again, as I, as I just noted, I'm fascinated by the relationship between technology and human agency. One common theme in military history, it seems to me, and you know probably in human history more generally, is the frequent misalignment between ideas and technology. You know, the will to implement a particular strategy or operation may be present at any given time, but the available technologies may be insufficient to realize that strategy or operation the disconnect between strategic bombing theory and air power, you know, the pre-nuclear age jumps to mind as one example. Was technology the principal bottleneck in the development of a successful American amphibious capability?
0: I would say that the technology portion of that came after the Spanish-American War, especially for the Marine Corps, which was at that time going through kind of like it's uh, as as technology developed and we get from wooden ships to steel ships and a more professional navy with Marines trying, becoming more and more antiquated. So the argument was during that time frame, the Marine Corps was trying to redefine its mission and its relevancy in U.S. national security in the early 20th century. You know, And you got mavericks like Lieutenant Colonel Pete Ellis and Major General Lejeune who were making the argument that the Marines were more than just shipboard police and doing ad hoc landing parties. And instead, they started to look at different forms of technology with the internal combustion engine You know, with aviation, with semi-automatic weapons, with machine guns, grenades, flamethrowers, that sort of thing. They were trying to, what they were trying to do was try to get more bang for your buck instead of just relying on U.S. ships to provide all the firepower, you know. So, and it was in addition to the firepower, but also the logistics capabilities, the quick movement of men and supplies from ship to shore, and just being able to build what Marines would call the Iron Mountain, which is put enough combat power and supplies ashore, to be able to defeat the enemy and seize the objective over there.
1: When we think about amphibious warfare today, most of us picture that incredible ability to achieve a, a buildout of, of combat power on the beachhead against a fortified position. You know we have the we pictured d day June 6, nineteen forty four you know hundreds of thousands of soldiers storming a fortified beach supported by landing craft and air power naval fire, engineers, etc. I was wondering if we could go back a little bit in time though, because as you point out in the book, a mere sixty years before D-Day, American military leaders, you know, when and if they thought about amphibious warfare at all, viewed it largely as a, a straightforward affair, you know, as you mentioned before. How did this mindset play out during the Spanish American War and you know, what were the consequences for American amphibious capabilities?
0: I think like for the Spanish American War, uh, I think While like strategically, the United States understood what they needed to do to uh, compel the Spanish Empire to recognize the the freedom of Cuba, as well as just doing a carte blanche and possessing key strategic positions in the Asia-Pacific region in the Caribbean. I think for the United States, uh, it was kind of like they – when – when the when the uh, dream met reality there, they found out that there was some obstacles they needed to go through, you know, especially when the unloading the American expeditionary force in Cuba, where they got to the shores of Cuba, but then they found out there's nowhere safe to land. So pretty much their solution was trying to load, like unload the horses by having them get as close to the shore as possible, have the horses dropped into the uh, water and then hope having the horses swim ashore. And sometimes I wasn't always successful or, just trying to unload the men and supplies for most of the most of the folks that were unloaded over in cuba they had to wait across the water and then use the boats to kind of throw their gear in there and and take it ashore and while they landed on the beaches there was no security provided there was no iron mountain built there and they had a hell of a time trying to get the artillery and uh more uh more of the uh, bigger amounts of supplies ashore there so when they, this was an opportunity for the Spanish garrison to wipe out the landing force, you know, right. and fortunately, you know, when you're going when you're going up against like some colonial forces at that time who were equally unprepared to fight in a major power, it kind of worked in our favor. So in my opinion, there was just a lot of luck that played into the operational and tactical aspect of the United States.
1: The Spanish-American War and the subsequent Philippine insurrection marked the United States' formal entry onto the world stage as a major actor, but American identity often appears wedded to an insular mindset. We want to possess enough power to keep the world at bay, but we are reluctant to engage with it till we're forced to do so. Did the admittedly limited success of amphibious operations in Cuba and the Philippines alter this national feeling in any way? Or was there a major retreat from the use of amphibious operations following the conclusions of the Spanish-American War and the Philippine-American War?
0: I think uh, the use of amphibious operations, even though there was a lot of lessons to be learned from the Spanish-American War, I think it emboldened the United States to realize that they had something going on for them. They were able to beat a major European power for the first time and set the conditions and the in the Treaty of Paris that concluded the Spanish-American War, there. But I think, in addition to that, it also by possessing the Philippines, having a great influence in Cuba, and then seizing Puerto Rico and some other key possessions that the Spanish owned. It also expanded our scope of responsibility as as a major player in the world stage, and that became more manifest where we get involved in the Boxer Rebellion, and then later on we get more increasingly involved in Central America and the Caribbean. Doing these police actions that are either protecting U.S. interests or contributing as a policeman in our ba- own backyard, they're p- kind of maintaining regional, regional security and order during that time frame. So I think the use of amphibious warfare allowed the United States to realize that they got more than just simply sending a couple of ships and trying to either blockade a port or lob a couple of shells to compel any type of uh, compliance from a. From a hostile uh, state government. I think the fact that they were able to land marines and soldiers ashore and be able to actually compel a government to change its policies or to protect U.S. national interests kind of, uh, kind of fed into American power projection capabilities. And we see that during the Boxer Rebellion where the United States, even though European powers still had the preponderance of forces, the fact that they were able to land an American relief expeditionary force from the Philippines and from elsewhere, and be able to have a major say on the ultimate faith of of China, you know, speaks volumes, you know, and the fact that they were able to maintain the open door policy under uh, Secretary Hayes, you know, so it just showed that the United States had something to bring to the party, and that was amphibious warfare and being able to compel hostile governments or prevent other hostile nations from trying to impose itself on the the international system.
1: You note that Roosevelt in the early 1900s articulates and then kind of physically manifests what I think really emerges as a principle of American power in the 20th century, and that is that we can use the technology itself to protect us, that it can be the ultimate guarantor of our national security. At the same time, though, the Marines in this period are the ones who are going ashore in the, you know, the Banana Wars and in the Boxer Rebellion. Is there also a pushback, a tension there between the the Corps as an institution and this uh, idea that we don't need to actually have a, a human element to power projection; that we can just simply have naval vessels and they will be our surrogate on the world stage?
0: I can say one thing though. I, Theodore Roosevelt is one of my favorite presidents, and of course, no one's perfect because he would, because because he he is not a big fan of Marines, and a lot of people outside the Marine Corps don't realize that. And unless you're like you and me, Scott, where we're really we really like reading into the history and we have a passion for it, but he was not a big fan of the Mar- Marines at all. So it was, and he wanted the Marines off the U.S. warships. You know, so it almost like a you know, try forces the Marine Corps hand to redefine itself where we were no longer shipboard policemen. You know, we try to tie ourselves into uh, the influence of sea power on history, especially, you know, Alfred Mahan, who is trying to show that by seizing coaling stations and different harbors and different key strategic parts of the world that the United States could position itself to have a major play in the world stage. And the Marine Corps complemented that by being able to be that force protection capability of being able to seize those islands and those coaling stations and those harbors for the U.S. military, especially the U.S. Navy, who needed that to extend its ability to dominate. And it depends if you're the Mahan model or if you're the like the commerce part where you're not totally dominating the oceans, but you're dominating key parts of the oceans. You know, so I think for, for the Marine Corps, it was more than just being able to provide police onto Navy ships. It was really being able to utilize the technology that was at hand, tying it to the tactical and operational aspects of how to do amphibious landings, and then strategically being able to provide what the United States was trying to do, become a relevant player in the international system and being able to have a say on how things went in the in world affairs.
1: Yeah, it struck me that, you know, today we talk a lot about technological irrelevance, the idea that automation or robots that can do a human task are going to replace us. And while I was reading the section where you where you go in depth about into the Marine Corps' evolution really seemed like it was an Example of a military organization successfully managing the transition from technological irrelevance, or at least the the perception that they were technologically irrelevant, to becoming a a technocratic elite.
0: Oh, absolutely, Scott. I'll tell you, like Max Boot even talks about too in his book, um, "In War Made New," where he talks about people who don't embrace technology end up being in the dustpan of history, or he said something along the lines of that. And I think Mm -hmm. for the Marine Corps, it was. It was the same thing. We were trying to show relevancy in the national security of the United States, you know, and that and we should be thankful that like, the, you know, that old saying that Marines always adapt and overcome. And I think it was at this time where the Marine Corps really adapted and overcome by bringing something that people thought was long dead and past its prime, which was amphibious warfare, incorporating new technologies, new tactics, new ways of planning. And being able to project hard power ashore, not just for the short term where you're seizing like key ports and islands or doing an amphibious raid or just to inflict punishment on the the coast. It's for pretty much being able to maintain a long term presence. And we've seen that in different parts of the world during the early 20th century.
1: Now, one thing that you focus on in the book and, and we mentioned a little bit earlier in the interview is Gallipoli. And even though it's not an American operation, it really is the the one major standout example of amphibious warfare mm-hmm. as we understand it today uh, in terms of the you know where the war component is equal in weight to the amphibious component, you know there's actually sustained sustained combat during the actual landing process. Oh, yeah. Did the American amphibious war theory, theorists in the interwar period? study Gallipoli? And you know what, if anything, did they learn from it?
0: I, I would say that uh, definitely after Gallipoli, the American military, especially the United States Marine Corps, definitely could study Gallipoli. What, what's interesting, though, is that th- this wasn't something that was put together by the British and just thrown on there. This was it, it, in my chapter on World War One. It really focuses on the British use of amphibious warfare and you see the lead up in Gallipoli in 1915. So in 1914, when the war first kicks off, the British used amphibious warfare to seize key German colonies in Africa and the Asia Pacific region. And it turns out to be a smashing success with a few exceptions. So like the two exceptions was German East Africa where the British British landed on the coast there and the Germans are waiting for them. And it turns out to be a total fiasco. This is before Gallipoli. You know, so when the British land ashore, just by sheer numbers, they're able to push back the German defenders and then push into Ger- into the interior of German East Africa, which was the one German colony that wasn't conquered by the British or any of the Allies during the entire First World War. So to, back then, it was it was the warning signal for the British that if they decide to land in Gallipoli, that this might not go according to this plan because they, they simply didn't have the technology. Hmm. It was an ad hoc operation, and more importantly. They had an understrength German garrison in Germany's Africa that was able to put them put them on their ropes during the initial in amphibious invasion. So fast forward to 1915, where you had the Ottoman Empire, which was looked at arguably as an underrated power and a very junior partner to the central powers. Winston Churchill saw it as a way to land in Gallipoli, do a quick knockout blow to the Ottoman Empire, and then open the Balkans up. For more su- more support, more reinforcements, more being able to concentrate more British power in that sector by going through, and of course, I say this tongue in cheek, the soft underbelly of the uh, of the central powers, you know. So, so and it turns out to be a total fiasco because you had a, the Ottoman Empire who spoke, who got defeated several times throughout the past century during the 19th and early 20th century by every by the by various European powers, solely whittling away at the Ottoman Empire. For the British, when they landed in Gallipoli, they thought this was going to be a walk in a park where they landed in Gallipoli, march up, seize Constantinople, slash Istanbul. And then, hey, it's it's tea time and let's party it up, you know. But it did end up like that. And it's because of the fact that the, the British did what they did on previous amphibious operations was that it was an ad hoc affair. There was no training, real preparation involved. And more importantly, the technology that they use wasn't developed yet because they weren't able to set their operational or tactical requirements in landing there. And as a result, they got bottlenecked trying to build the Iron Mountain. There was no quick uh, follow through and being able to seize the initiative and push quickly beyond the confining terrain of Gallipoli. And as a result, you know, the Ottomans were able to bottleneck them in there and keep them fighting on territory of their own choosing, thanks to some great German advisors that were able to quickly guide them through there. And then you got uh, Aratuk, who was a junior officer at that time, who was able to to capitalize on the tactical situation, you know. so. But going back to your question here is that the Americans did focus on Gallipoli because it was the largest amphibious landing during the First World War. And now it's as close to reality that as they were going to get. Knowing what we know now with our study of World War II and beyond and amphibious operations, Gallipoli was the case study of doing a mo- the, one of the first modern amphibious landings and utilizing the technology of that time to try to give as much firepower and much support to the, to the landing force. And for the United States Marine Corps, it, it became an obsession, not simply because of the fact that we were trying to show our relevancy, in my opinion, but also because of the fact that there was some real thinkers like, like Lieutenant Colonel Pete Ellis and Major General Lejeune who had to make key, who contributed to making key decisions in the Marine Corps history? Like, we got like uh, Major General Smedley Butler, who was a small, small wars guy, and he thought the Marine Corps should go in that direction. And then you got advocates like Major General LeJeune, mm-hmm. who saw the Marine Corps going a totally radical direction, which was we weren't a colonial force. We are, we have to stay tied in with our Navy roots, and we have the technology, and we have the Mavericks and the experts and the training. And the extensive knowledge from doing this for all, for over a hundred years to be able to use our core capabilities and then be able to use it in the next war, which for the United States was not a European affair. It was more of looking at and we can talk about this all day. The the regional confrontation that was looming between the United States and Japan, especially after the First World War and the seizing of the Carolina Islands and key German colonies in the South Pacific, which expanded Japanese. Uh, hmm. Japanese influence in the Asia Pacific region that almost served as a as almost like a stranglehold on US colonial possessions.
1: Yeah, and you know, then you have uh you know the the Washington Naval Treaty, which antagonizes oh, the Japanese yeah. and forces them to abrogate abrogate their uh alliance with the British and oh, absolutely. limit their power yeah. to uh in proportionate yeah. it raises an interesting question about how militaries innovate because we've been talking about the technolo- the technological aspect and you know whether or not the, the technology does seem to be a, a bottleneck for the development of a successful amphibious warfare capability but it is also interesting to note that uh, you know a theme that you you bring up throughout the book is that there seems to be some ambient level of great power friction that is necessary for a military to innovate you know in this case amphibious warfare is is, seems to only emerge once a critical mass of competition is Mm -hmm. reached is is that the case you think that if you know for instance we didn't have that friction with japan or even if you know uh after the Spanish-American War, we hadn't decided, you know we didn't have we didn't have the the Roosevelt corollary to the Monroe Doctrine or it really it we any desire, however limited to exert our influence even regionally, that we wouldn't have developed the same capability or that we wouldn't have had it? Or do you think you know institutions like the Marines would have really still been the driver towards uh, pushing us in that direction?
0: No, I'm tracking, Scott. I think like what for the United States and just for any other country, the difficulty is trying to predict how the next war is going to be fought. You know, and so this was, stuff, I, I know I talked about the Marine Corps and its relevancy, but it goes beyond that, in my opinion, where you're trying to predict what the next war is going to look like. What are the, for the United States, what are their national interests? What What is, where is their key involvement in in world affairs here? You know, like, so for example, like the Japanese, uh, the Washington Naval Conference t- it turned out to be a fiasco for the Japanese for two reasons. One is the alliance of Great Britain was over, so they no longer had the British to rely on for an alliance. And two, it was a, the Na- Washington Naval Conference arguably was saying that, uh, hey, we get the preponderance of battleships. The Japanese, you're still not considered equal with the major powers. You get these many battleships. And the Japanese felt like if This was during a time where international security, collective security was the, was the key thing, you know, and the Japanese felt betrayed by that, in my opinion. And as a result, they looked at new ways of trying to trying to expand their, their not only their interests, but also safeguard the protection of their home islands. Hence, their, the, the confines of the Washington Naval Treaty kind of made the Japanese think outside the box. So if we can't have battleships as many as the European and Western powers do. Let's look at naval aviation and aircraft carriers, which wasn't right. stipulated in any of the, the talks on that, which you're perfectly right. fine with, you know, for the Germans and for the uh, for the European powers in the Western, after the bloodshed of the Western front, their focus was like, how do we win the next war? And for the Germans, it was the use of armored warfare, you know, and com- combined arms tactics, you know, for the United States, they kind of looked at their capability of being entering even though there's collective security entering a a global arena where the stakes were even higher because the treaty of versailles left a a lot of unhappy people on both sides especially the germans the japanese and the italians you know Hmm. so it kind of set the stage up for the united states almost like wondering what does the future look like and for the united states especially when the great depression hits and the and the international system begins to fall apart it looks pretty grim you know so it The the strategic interest of the United States was constantly changing because back in the early 20th century, we looked at Japan as a potential threat. But ironically enough, we had the Rainbow Plans that looked at potential major powers that the United States could go to war with. with. So So when we finally, when it becomes more and more obvious that the Japanese and the United States were coming to loggerheads by the 1930s, especially especially in early 1940, 1941, when we begin to impose economic sanctions, especially in oil and energy resources, Japan, you know, it kind of forces the hand of everybody that the only solution is through warfare there. So I would say that the United States was kind of experimenting in all different types of technologies during the 1920s and 30s. You know, we have Duhet with his use of uh, strategic bombing. We have like uh, Billy Mitchell you know that was looking at the strategic use of mm. bombers. You know you got uh, Pete Ellis looking, trying, actually predicting like how the Asia Pacific campaign was going to go against Japan, and encouraging major players like Major General Lejeune and, and key Marine Corps figures to invest more of their time and energy into not only studying amphibious warfare but experimenting with different amphibious technologies and being able to train troops. And we do these with very modest, very low funded, like exercises and operations in the Caribbean, you know, just looking at like some of the pictures in the book where you had had a Marine pushing along look like a little tractor trailer onto the beach. I mean, that was just the foundations of what we would see for amphibious warfare with the development of Amtraks, you know, and the Higgins boats and all that. This was It was just a step of a thousand journeys or a step of a thousand It was a journey of a thousand steps there. That was just beginning. It was very humbling. And at the same time, very inspiring because of the fact they were thinking outside the box because nothing like this ever existed. You know, and for the British, I mean, they were looking at at radar and fire technology, you know. So everybody during that time was trying to trying to learn the legacy of the First World War. And that's the mistake everyone makes is that they fight the next war just like they're going to fight the last war. And no one knew at that time accurately how the second war was going to be fought, you know? So it was really interesting. And of course, when we, when dreams meet reality, everyone changes their tactics. They refine their skills, they improve their technology. So it's, it's very interesting watching that development happen.
1: One of the other major themes, especially in the interwar period is the various arms, each jockeying for a piece of the fiscal pie and figure trying to figure out ways that they can both meet the the exigencies of the moment and prove their worth within the military system mm-hmm. and to also to their political masters in congress by figuring out how we can get the most bang for the least buck and what you said there about amphibious warfare kind of makes me wonder if they're also op, you know if p- people like Ellis and Uh, the other amphibious warfare theorists of the period. We're we're trying to work within that uh, confine as well, that some of this was also driven just by the practicalities of having a a limited budget and needing to get some of that for yourself and for your institution. No,
0: absolutely. Absolutely. Yes, yeah, Scott. I mean, I'll tell you, it, it was a, it was almost like a Renaissance period where it, it, anything goes, you know. So the legacy of the First World War, at least for the American military, was that they were able to at least conceptualize for the first time what modern warfare looked like since the American Civil War, which was like over 50 years ago for their time. So they mm-hmm. were trying to trying to predict essentially what technologies are going to be relevant the next 20 to 30 years down the road. And for the United States, they weren't thinking about fighting a global war. They were thinking about a head to head confrontation with Japan, you know, and they weren't thinking of unconditional surrender. They were thinking along the lines of the, uh, in my opinion, the Russo Japanese War, a very limited war that would be short and bloody, and that there would either be a, a victor or a loser in this in this short conflict. But it didn't turn out to be the case. It turned out to be the worst case scenario possible where you had two major regional wars merge into one global conflict, you know, and it had significant ramifications on the United States and, and it kind of threw the rainbow plan out the window because they weren't expecting to fight, fight the three major powers at the same time with two of them on the ropes, the Soviet union and the United kingdom. And then of course you got China as well, you know, so they were, they were all overextended and worse yet, you know, the, because of the Great Depression and the cuts in the military and the but the slow, gradual rearming of uh, the American military, it still wasn't enough, especially with the short amount of time they had to make a decisive difference in 1942.
1: <laughs> Going back in time a little bit to the First World War uh, again, you know, and talking about how, how Gallipoli specifically is the, the blueprint for. Studies in the 1920s and the 1930s, and and significantly influences how American amphibious warfare theorists, at least in part, are thinking about the the nature of amphibious warfare and its its relationship to strategy and the America's geopolitical situation. Mm-hmm. The previous episode that I recorded, I had Stephen C. Kefaron, who's also a, a Naval Institute Press author, and uh, he wrote a, a new book about D Day and the the operational planning that went in prior to the actual execution of Overlord. And he brought up this interesting division between how the British saw amphibious warfare and what what its nature was, what its fundamental nature was, and how it could be successfully undertaken versus the United States. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that because the disparity is very different. And you kind of you you note how the experience of the First World War because Britain was in it and had experienced Gallipoli, they in the second world war, see amphibious operations in a particular light. And the Americans who were not involved draw an almost opposite conclusion about its its effic- efficacy.
0: Oh, absolutely. I think also you got to remember who's the leader during that time. And it was Winston Churchill, who was probably traumatized from Gallipoli. I mean, that Gallipoli ended up ruining his career and sending him back several years. I mean, his his political career was uh, such in bad shape that, he volunteers to go fight in the Western Front and is able to distinguish himself. You know, a lot of people forget that portion here. So fast forward to the ninth, to World War II. There, you got Winston Churchill now the Prime Minister having to make very very difficult decisions during that time. And he think he sees, in my opinion, Gallipoli in every amphibious operation. Hence his hesitancy to commit at least the, the British Expeditionary Force into any sort of amphibious. Landing, you know. So, so in this case here, we see, we see the fact that he does the d raid raid to kind of test the uh, French coastal defenses that are dominated by the Germans, and it ends up yeah. being a total disaster. And it confirms to, to Churchill that hey, amphibious warfare is still dead. It's it's not relevant to us. We need to find a way to hit Nazi Germany and hit them hard. And he seemed to be more of an air enthusiast, in my opinion, just because of his. His use of strategic bombers and being able to at least wear the German war machine down while it's in the Eastern Front. The Americans, on the other hand, weren't didn't have the trauma of Gallipoli and there was no political or military careers that were ruined because of it. The Americans kind of give it another shot, you know, because they felt that this was one campaign. And just because it failed the first time doesn't mean it's going to fail in like the second, the third, or the fourth time, you know, and I and I think the Americans approached amphibious warfare with a sense of optimism and the fact that they saw opportunities, while the British were more influenced by the setbacks that they suffered because of that, you know. And as a result, I think the Americans' uh, confidence in amphibious warfare built during built up during the interwar years because of their success in the Banana Wars and the fact that they used it in policing actions. In China and the Asia Pacific region, especially in the Philippines, where they are conducting counterinsurgency operations, which are composed of thousands of islands in the Philippine archipelago. You know, just reading like Smedley Butler's accounts of his his role in the Philippines. I mean, the guy was doing amphibious landings in the middle of a typhoon for crying out loud. So it's it's interesting. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. obviously, obviously, Marines could be could be accused of not being the smartest. Smartest individuals here on the planet, but we definitely had audacity and we had a lot of faith in our amphibious capabilities to know when we can take a tactical risk and when we can take advantage of uh, vulnerabilities when fighting against the enemy. So, when we approached World War II, we had the American technological know how to be able to identify the operational and tactical requirements of landing on a beach based on years of experience from both the US Navy and the United States Marine Corps the exercises we did during the interwar years, and more importantly, the fact that we codified it in a tentative landing manual during the 1930s where, you know, the Commandant of the Marine Corps, uh, Joe Halkob, like shuts down the Marine Corps' formal schools and he focuses these students, some of which were veterans of the Banana Wars and the First World War, and be able to identify, codify, and be able to make a, what we call a set of TTPs, tactics, techniques, and procedures to be able to conduct an amphibious landing using modern technology in a hostile beach.
1: Now, it's interesting uh, that when we think about, again, you know, we kind of talked about this earlier, that we think about uh, amphibious warfare, we we think about um, D-Day specifically, Mm -hmm. and obviously the Marines are not involved in D-Day there in the pacific doing lots of d-days and you refer in the book to the second world war as the golden age of amphibious warfare and i i was interested that even even though even though the cover of the book shows a picture of d-day you focus on all these other other d-days yeah. all the other examples throughout the conflict where the american amphibious capability really came into its own could you talk a little bit about that
0: Oh, yeah, absolutely. I say this tongue in cheek and I say this jokingly, like uh, some people said, hey, if you're talking about the Marine Corps amphibious warfare, why do you have like the uh, D-Day landings on the cover there? And I, I was like, listen, obviously, the Naval Institute press wasn't receptive to my original title was how the Marine Corps made the United States a superpower, 1898 to 1945. So in this case, what I think D-Day was the pinnacle of being able to conduct a well-rehearsed, well-executed amphibious operation. And it just wasn't just throwing a bunch of men and materials ashore. This was something that the United States built up, you know, it, there, especially during the beginning of the Second World War, where you land Marines over in Guadalcanal. It was almost like trial and error, landing Marines in Guadalcanal, landing Marines in Macon Island, especially when the Marines were landing in Tarawa, where it was the Japanese were arguing it'd take a hundred years to, to seize the island and the Marines seized it in a couple of days. But Tarawa, I, I'll use Tarawa, for example, it was like the first time where they actually use combat camera slash uh, like film, uh, uh, film crew to actually document the planning stages the rehearsals, and then the actual landing itself of an American force against a well-entrenched, very well-trained enemy force on an island that was only a couple square miles wide. you know. And the reason why they wanted to document it was to find out what does it look like? What does an amphibious operation look like? And, and this wasn't something that they were going to pull the trigger on on uh, for d-day there they wanted to see what were the conditions that soldiers sailors marines and airmen were going to face in trying to execute this operation and so what ends up happening was that the uh, is that the marines almost get thrown off the beach you know and the fact that you got like amphibious capabilities like the higgins boats getting stuck on the coral reefs and it took the amtrak to be able to negotiate those coral reefs you know fire support coordination Uh, fields of fire, building the Iron Mountain, everything was, uh, there was a lot of things that went wrong during that landing. And it was only against a small Japanese garrison vices going up against the Atlantic wall. So what ended up happening because of like Tarawa was the fact that there was hard lessons learned. And more importantly, it it could also be said that when they did the document documentary, uh, Marines, the Marines at Tarawa, it generated a lot of mm. american support because they thought that releasing this film would actually demoralize the american people and it arguably helped help Ameri- the american people support the war effort by buying more w- war funds by encouraging their political leadership to support more amphibious capabilities so when the, when you fast forward to june 1944 we weren't reliving tarawa all over again pro, pro, granted there was other amphibious operations before d day but and before after tarawa but by 19 june 1944 we've perfected it to a to a science and an art so the, the fact that we were able to land successfully on the beaches of, right. of normandy with, and god you can always look at private ryan where you see like the rangers landing there on the beaches and they're going through there that wasn't always the case in the other landing areas as well they it was very well planned very well executed and more importantly the germans were not ready for for the skill and the speed and the audacity that the United States was willing to do to execute amphibious landing in weather and sea conditions that were totally against landing landing on the beaches. However, with that said, you had General Eisenhower that kept like a a document in his pocket saying that the landing the landing force failed and that was driven into the sea and that he accepted full responsibility for the failure of amphibious warfare. So. Even though we perfected it, even then, back then, it was still American, the American leadership was still leery of what was going to happen during that time frame. So I think like, again, just being able to execute uh, Operation Overlord and successfully landing on the beaches of France, it just showed how far the United States came from being, uh, you know, using wooden boats and laying on the beaches of Cuba to now being able to land tens of thousands of soldiers and tons of equipment and weapons onto the beach, and then quickly being able to push push out of the beachhead into the interior of France Speaks volumes. It wasn't like Tarawa or Anzio or Operation Torch, where we were still fumbling and trying to figure things out. We were ready at that time.
1: You're probably familiar with DMG and Greco's Hell to Pay and his counterfactual alternate history, essentially, of what would have happened had we attempted an, an amphibious assault on Kyushu during Operation Downfall? And that always usually gets wrapped up in the debate over you know, the, atom, the use of the atomic bomb, obviously. But do you think that despite the steady progression in American amphibious competence, I guess we could say, that even dis, even despite that, American leaders at the end were hesitant to... Actually, launch an invasion because they still recognize that amphibious warfare was a very near-run uh, sort of operation.
0: I, I, I think it. I'm going to give you the the lawyer answer. It depends. Like it depends. Who you, who you talk to and like what they were thinking at that time. And unfortunately, I, I don't know what every key political and military figure was thinking. I, I can only guess and I can o- and I can only read between the lines. but I could tell you, like General MacArthur, he was ready to do the amphibious landing in Kushu, the southernmost right. island of Japan. You know, and then he was and then what's interesting is the follow on operation So they looked at two amphibious landings like they're looking at landing in Kushu. In nineteen late nineteen forty five and in hanshu which is the main Japanese island which where, where Tokyo and Kyoto are at in nineteen forty six you know and they were doing it ba- in my opinion based on the what they ran into with the Japanese from nineteen forty one up to nineteen forty five which was fanatical resistance you know the fact that the Japanese knew that the united states were at, adhered to heavy loss of human life and casualties, and they what they wanted to do was pay, have the United States pay such a price for the unconditional surrender of Japan. Is how many, how much money, how much material, how many, how many men are you willing to throw into the fire to defeat us? You know, so I think at that time the Japanese were trying to do uh, some sort of negotiated peace where even though they were defeated, they would still have a say on the table here. So I I would say they weren't sure right. on how effective the atomic bomb was going to be because we both know Scott that the, by then by 1944 1945 Curtis Lemay the firebombing of the Japanese cities did more destruction than the atomic bomb did. So when did the, the atomic when the atomic bomb was developed, it was looked at as a bomb a bigger and better version of any type of bomb that was developed. But they did and they kind of conceptually knew like the destructive capabilities, but they weren't completely familiar with it because it was all about ending the war as quickly as possible. They weren't aware of the the environmental and mm. the human cost of using nuclear weapons. So when when they used the atomic bomb, it was in my opinion, it was really just as a as a throw to get the Japanese to compel them to surrender. You know, and especially when the Potsdam Conference talks about the the utter destruction of Japan, it's kind of forces Japan to dig its heels even more. So yeah. that's when were, the United States were, and you could have like a whole podcast just based on talking about it. It's really fascinating where the Potsdam Conference says, once Germany is defeated, then the Soviet Union will shift its resources and attack Japan, which they did. You know, they they totally overran the Japanese in Manchuria, poured into the Korean Peninsula, and then seized Sakhalin Island. And then they were getting ready to land in Hokkaido. You know, meanwhile, the United States would come and, Land in Kushu and Honshu there. And so for me, like uh, it was, it was thankful. I'm thankful Mm. that the atomic bomb worked because it compelled the Japanese emperor to intervene and broadcast to the radio. Since, you know, when you're the top dog there, everyone's going to tell you what you want to hear. But as the Japanese emperor, you know, he saw it completely different and it took his own political and divine intervention to compel the Japanese people to surrender, Mm. you know? So in this case, Doing the, doing the amphibious landings, it, it, would the United States do it? You can make an argument for it. They, they can use the naval blockade to starve the island. They can continue on with the fire bombings. Uh, but I'll tell you that the operational planning that went into planning out Operation Downfall, the building of the Iron Mountain and the invasion force and the Ryukyu Islands for the invasion, it was going to happen. They were determined to land there, especially when the Soviets were entering the war in the Asia-Pacific region. But the, again, the casualties were, they were expecting was just based on the fanatical yeah. resistance. And, the, and you, when you read the Japanese defense plans that they were going to implement, the whole, the whole island population being armed, women and children being armed with, with sticks and spears you know, and explosives, the use of kamikaze fighters. I mean, these were like planes with just enough aviation to go and hit any type of ship that was off the shore with the landing force. you know. So it was – yeah. It, they were expecting a million casualties. This thing was going to be more massive than D-Day, and of course, you had the British also being able to send their forces to help reinforce. This, this would have been more than just the United States laying on the beaches. It would have took the major powers of the world at that time for the Allied camp: the British, the British and the Commonwealth alliance, uh, the Soviet Union, and the United States. There, so it's great to talk about. I, I would say, in my opinion, that they that the, the United States uh knowing what i know and what they were willing to sacrifice were ready to put their money where their mouth is in a case like that
1: yeah i've come to think of the uh, nuclear bombs as uh nuclear powered siege engines
0: yeah it, it, and i'll tell you scott what, what's interesting is like there when you read the uh, operation downfall plan like when so you were talking about so when we land on honshu we'll push from south to north toward hokkaido and then when we run into the main line of japanese resistance in central honshu we're going to go ahead by then we'll have six atomic bombs. We'll go ahead and drop it on the main Japanese defense line. And then we'll just roll right in through the hole in the Japanese defense <laughs> line, you know, and you're just like, why, what, why were you thinking? You know, but that's, again, it was just the, what they knew at the time, which was very interesting. You know, they had no idea like, Hey, that's not a good idea to use six atomic bombs and then roll your military right through the irradiated area and stuff like that. So it would have been, it would have been a human tragedy if it happened
1: after 1945 you know it seems like we then have a a kind of re- reversion to the pre first world war theodore roosevelt mindset you know technology will keep us safe we have nuclear weapons you know we have uh, aircraft carriers we have all of these incredible innovations that emerge from the the crucible of the second world war and I can't remember the name of the, either it was an undersecretary of state or it might have even been uh, someone in the Navy who argued in the 50s, you know, or right after the first, second world war, that now we have this technology, we have, and we have air power. And you know, certainly Curtis LeMay was in this camp, that we don't need an amphibious capability. And, you know, of course, MacArthur belies the veracity of that claim in Korea. But it does really seem that since the 1950s, we've been moving inexorably toward a point where technology has outpaced our ideas about amphibious warfare, perhaps to the point where the amphibious skill set is no longer relevant or necessary. Does the fact that we now fight war you know in cyberspace and we use automated agents like drones, and, you know, even the fact that we have airlift capabilities, does that make amphibious operations any less relevant or important for us to maintain as a as a skill set in today's environment?
0: No, that's a great question, Scott. Uh, I'll say that uh, the, the Marine Corps conducted one of the longest amphibious operations in, in the 21st century, where you had Brigadier General Mattis, who launches from the North Arabian Sea, into near Kandahar, Afghanistan, you know, so you had an amphibious force that traveled like hundreds of miles across some of the world's largest mountains and able to land from the sea into the middle of Afghanistan and seize seize an airfield there for follow-on forces in southern Afghanistan, as well as being able to prevent the Taliban and Al-Qaeda from falling back from them fighting the northern alliance up in northern Afghanistan to their base of operations down in Kandahar. You know, so that shows that there's still relevance in amphibious warfare. With that said, like I know with the Iraq and Afghan wars and the various small conflicts that we've been involved in, there's always the argument that drones, special operators, cyber warfare, information operations and uh, and other capabilities that the United States has, especially space operations with the establishment of the Space Force kind of sh- hints at, well, maybe amphibious warfare is not as relevant as it was before. But I would argue that all these other capabilities are still brand new and still have limitations. And we've seen that during the Iraq and Afghan wars where drones can only do so much to be able to bring power projection to different states. You know, it's, it, it just depends on what the operational requirements are or special operators. Great for internal defense hitting high value targets. But we saw its capability, its capabilities and its limitations during the initial opening phases of the Afghan campaign. In 2001, 2002, um, the same could be said with cyber warfare, where it's still in its nascent stages, believe it or not. So people, even though people are about cyber warfare, there is also unintended consequences that haven't been identified, in my opinion, when you use a technology that's interconnected with the rest of the world. So a great example is some of the global. Global uh, online viruses, computer viruses that spread around, like uh, when they talk about the, the the worm that was spreading from Sweden online and having an impact on all these computers and systems a couple of years back. You know, no one realized the extent of the the effects that's like cyber warfare or any type of computer computer virus could have on the whole infrastructure as a whole. And, and plus you got to look at the international aspect. There's, they're still trying to figure out like the international conduct and laws regulating the use of, of cyber warfare. I mean, that's like, that's like the wild west. It's our carte blanche on how they want to use cyber capabilities. You know, so so like the the problem with cyber warfare is that you're not sure what effect that's going to have on the enemy. And more importantly, what's the effect that's going to have on you, especially when we're all tied into the World Wide Web and to other states who are our friends and allies as well. You know, with amphibious warfare, it goes back to sometimes the old ways work best. I mean, no country feels comfortable having not only a naval force off the coast of their own country, but more importantly, no one likes the fact that that there's always the potential of some men and women who are ready to do violence in their country on behalf of another nation's stead you know where you're you have boots on the ground not on the ground in your own home but also on your neck compelling you to do something that you might or might not want to do you know so i would say that although the conduct of war has changed the nature of war still remains the same
1: obviously as we've noted predicting the future of warfare is a incredibly unscientific endeavor, to say the least, and uh, highly inaccurate endeavor. But th- with that caveat in place, where do we go from here? What's the future of amphibious warfare in the 21st century?
0: Well, I can tell you for the future of amphibious warfare, I mean, we talked about this uh, earlier in the podcast here where there's cyber warfare, use of special operators. Uh, of course, we got space operations now. What's the relevance and use of amphibious warfare? I mean, you can make an argument that 70% of the world is all open ocean. They're what we call global commons. You know, And what makes this interesting and exciting in the 21st century, especially with the rise of technology, is look at the South China Sea. Look at the, uh, look at the way the international waters are changing now, where we had the Chinese establishing artificial islands in the uh, South China Sea. In addition to that, we got the establishment of economic exclusive zones. And then, of course, you got the United Nations International Law to see Sea there, where territorial waters are extending even further and further out, where you're seeing it from five, five miles up to 15 miles, and then arguments being made for beyond that. So with the establishment of artificial islands and platforms, we got to look at what is amphibious warfare going to look like in the 21st century. And I think Joan Berger, um, who's the current commandant of the Marine Corps, his vision is really trying to make the amphibious force more lighter, in my opinion. You know, he's done away with the old school ways of doing amphibious operations where he got rid of a lot of the artillery community there. He also got rid of uh, some of the infantry battalions. But what he's trying to do is make lighter, more flexible, faster amphibious capabilities to be able to project power onto these new, new scenarios that we're seeing in the international system, you know. The use of the landing and seizure of artificial islands and platforms being to neutralize anti-access weapon systems that the Chinese have been establishing along the coast or or on the artificial islands and beaches. The the fact that the Marine Corps is still constantly changing and redefining itself on how to use amphibious warfare speaks volumes. And of course, it's like we're, we're, we're taking we're taking a strategic and operational risk. Like we, the, the constant theme of any time technology changes, we're trying to predict how the next war is going to be fought. And I think for the Marine Corps, and especially General Berger and his vision for the Marine Corps and our essential role in national security policy is, how does the Marine Corps complement the use of military force to enforce not only peace and order in the international system, but also to safeguard our interests? And I think by the use of light amphibious technologies, uh, the use of a new way of a standard, of, a, of neutralizing anti-access denial weapons and having smaller, lighter, more effective amphibious capabilities is is the key to the future right now. Based on our conversations, and I'll tell you, Scott, like what this book is is not a book supposed to do is what the Marine Corps has been doing for 200 years, and that's to generate a continued discussion on the continued relevance of amphibious warfare. And I think General Berger has done that. And I think the Marine Corps, people way smarter than me and more articulate than me could have been doing that, in, especially in the past couple of months. I I can tell you as being part of the organization here that uh, I'm very excited about it. I definitely like to see what's coming down the road. And I, and I look forward to some way like this book uh, contributing to that continued discussion and being able to continue that development amphibious warfare.
1: Uh, so David, you've been very generous with your time today. And before we let you go, I just have one final question. Now that the emergence of American amphibious warfare is out and on our shelves, uh, what's next for you?
0: You know, uh, someone was asking me that question yesterday. Um, I've been working on the, uh, the presidential use of the all-volunteer force uh, from 1948 to 2015. I know that this was something that uh, some some people have argued that the that past presidents almost had carte blanche to use the all volunteer force to achieve whatever national interests are front and center at that time, and that there's very little checks and balances to that use of military force. Uh, essentially my manuscript is arguing the opposite Uh, just because they did away with the draft and the all-volunteer force is now front and center. You could look at history and see that, you know, using the draft wasn't the norm for the United States military. You know, we've always had a professional, a small professional military force. And in a way, even though we're still the most powerful country on the planet with the most powerful military, it's still composed of volunteers, you know. Especially when you look at the the, lo- the size of the U.S. population and the size of our military, it's it's still very rare to find people serving volunteer or serve being like forced to look at the military as a means to serve their country, you know. So, so with that said, I, my argument is that there are checks and balances. It's not it's not instant in curbing back the use of military force at times because the, just like anything else, uh, you know, being a democracy where it takes time for the me- people to make up their own minds on the use of military force, but more importantly, be able to to apply pressure onto their political leadership to change policies. And we, we saw that not just with the Vietnam war, but we've seen that with follow on wars like the Gulf war, the, the uh, Yugoslav wars, Kosovo, definitely in Iraq and Afghanistan. And it had repercussions where the American people weighed in through the political system and they were able to curb the use of of the all volunteer force. So that's the project I'm working on next. I'm very excited about it because it definitely wasn't something I was expecting. I was more along the lines of Dr. Andrew Bacevich Mm -hmm. where there is an irresponsible use of military force. I'm finding out just based on my research that that's not the case and that the United States Has always been been responsible in trying to be accountable for its actions, whether it's use of the military or any type of use of power projection. That's what, in my opinion, that's what makes the United States great. Is that you know we can be like a little little rough and reckless at times there, but we also have safeguards in place, and we also got the American people that ultimately make the decision on U.S. uh, national security policy and how we conduct it.
1: That sounds uh, sounds quite fascinating. We'll we'll have to have you back on once it's once it's released. Absolutely, Scott. David, thanks again for taking the time to speak with me today.
0: Hey, thank you so much, Scott. It's been a real pleasure.